Hello, I'm Marcus Pibworth and welcome to the Ministry of Change. And here on the Ministry of Change podcast, I like to discuss what it really, really means to be human and how we can navigate all this, all the ups and downs that life throws at us. Because let's face it, that can be pretty challenging at times. Recently, over the past few episodes, I've been having conversations with people from different spiritual traditions because I thought it'd be a really interesting angle to explore sort of mental health and navigating life from a perspective of uh, spirituality or people that have been really, really dedicating their lives to exploring these questions on a spiritual level and see if there is a role that spirituality can play in creating inner and outer change, social change, and if there is, what that could be. And so two episodes ago, I uploaded a conversation I'd recorded with Radha Mohan Das, a former Harry Krishna monk. And then last week, last episode, if you listened, it was with Lama Yeshi, the head Lama at the Tibetan Buddhist monastery Same Ling in Scotland. And uh, they were both really fascinating conversations, really interesting people to talk to. And today the conversation is going to be one I had with Annie Lamo, a Tibetan Buddhist nun, also at the Sami Ling Monastery. And she is Lama Yeshi's secretary. And I would say if you didn't listen to the episode with Lama Yeshi to go back and listen to that first, perhaps, because she goes in to talk a little bit more in depth about his life at one part of it and it would probably help if you'd heard the other one and the other one's really good as well so why not but before I go into the conversation I'm a storyteller and I would like to tell you a little story because I think stories are a really fabulous way of digging deeper into your consciousness beyond your thinking mind into the place where your heart feels and your body knows And so I'm going to just start with a little fun story that I heard from a storyteller called Janet, who is calls herself the Bluebird Storyteller. And it's a it's a really fun one. I've shared a few times. And this is a little story about a spider. And our spider spends all day working away, sweating away, creating his web. And when he's finished the web, he sits back and looks at it and thinks, oh, it's very grey. And he sets out across the garden and he goes to the rose, the beautiful red rose. And he says, Rose, Rose, my web is so grey and drab. How did you get such beautiful red colours in your petals? And the rose looks to the spider and says, well, spider, I don't know, sometimes... Things just happen. Well, that's not a very satisfactory answer, thought the spider. And he looked around the garden and he scuttled across to the big oak tree. And he said to the oak tree, oak tree, oak tree, my web is so grey and drab. How did you get such beautiful green colours in your leaves? The oak tree looked down over the little spider and he said, Well, spider, I don't know. Sometimes things just happen. 
Oh, again, not a very satisfactory answer, thought the spider. And this time, he ran off across the garden to the wall where he saw a little blue tit perched. And he said to the blue tits, Blue tits, blue tits, my web is so grey and drab. How do you get such beautiful blue and yellow colours in your feathers? And the little bird looked down to him and said, I don't know, sometimes things just happen. Oh, I'm not going to get a good answer out of any of them, am I? Thought the spider. And in a huff, he scurried back to his web. That night, as he sat in his web, the winds began to blow and a storm came in and rains began to torrent down onto his web, bouncing him around. Oh, it was a long night. But then in the morning, when he awoke, he opened his eyes. And as the sun shone through his web, it caught the droplets of rain that hung inside. And suddenly the web was transformed into a beautiful cacophony of every colour of the rainbow imaginable. Wow, what a sight it was. The spider was so happy. And from around the garden, the oak tree, the green oak tree came. The red rose came and the blue and yellow blue tit came and they all said to the spider, Wow, spider, your web is such beautiful colours. How did you get all these colours into your web? And the spider looked up to them with a big smile on his face and he said, Sometimes things just happen. I think that's a really nice story. <laughs> I think it's fun. Uh, it's a good one to tell to adults and children, I think. And it's a really sort of good one as well about sort of just uh, about some patience and understanding, trusting in the process of life and knowing that things will come when they need to come. And sometimes we try so hard when really the answer is to stop trying and to let things happen. But anyway... I'm going to go now into playing the conversation that I recorded up in Scotland at the Samuelling Tibetan Buddhist Monastery with Annie Lamo, who's been a nun there for 30 years. Or Anyway, she'll tell you more in our conversation, so I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so I'm Annie Lamo, and I, of course, live at Samuelling. And like I told you before, I've been here 30 years, and actually it's longer than that because... Before I came to live here, I was visiting a lot. But I lived not that far away in my town in Glasgow, less than two hours away. So I used to come every weekend. So I did that for five years, also every holiday. So I spent a lot of time here before coming to live here. And so I guess the thing is there is a reason for that. And that is that I found it incredibly helpful and meaningful. And you know, it's a long time ago, so I was quite young. I think I was about 25 or something when I first started doing it. 27. Something like that. So that's, um, to me, that seems very young now. But in those days, I didn't feel so young. 
and it was also old enough to have had a bit of time to find out what life offers. And I, I tried a few things and wasn't totally satisfied with what I'd experienced. And I didn't feel like it's fine to spend the rest of my life like this. And that thought depressed me a bit. So, when I came across this and heard what Tibetan nuns said and saw what their aims were and how they lived their lives, then it was like, you know, doors opening. Life doesn't need to be this narrow, restricted, meaningless, empty thing. It can actually be incredibly productive. What were the lamas saying? The thing that really struck me about the first lama that I met was about um, loving kindness and compassion and how that is about something that's highly effective and intelligent and it's not just silly, gooey, sentimental stuff, but really um, heavy duty compassion. So that's you know, like if somebody just needs a hug, you give them a hug. If they need that kind of love, you give it. If they need a good whack around the ear, you give it to them. <laughs> you know, having the wisdom to know what's appropriate. So sometimes it takes courage to really help people in the way that's most helpful for them. It takes courage, it takes a lot of wisdom and insight. And it, if I'm a very selfish person, I'm never ever going to get to that point. So that whole kind of area of how you develop those qualities I found totally fascinating. And I guess, really, that's what's kept me going between then and now. And what's been the motivation for doing whatever I've done since then. That basically, my experience was there was nothing else that was worth doing. And at that time, it seemed like a, you know, a total impossibility to do what I'm doing now. And also, Samaline didn't even exist in the way that it does now. But taking the steps that lead to that, everything ended up being quite possible. And things that looked like they were totally unlikely or just too big a step or not in character, or, you know, all these kind of things. Like going from being a kind of so-called ordinary person to being a Tibetan Buddhist nun seems like quite a big step. Going from being somebody who's got an ordinary job and blah, 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 and then becoming a person who's actually locked up in retreat for four years seems impossible, but it's not. So all these things I kind of discovered, you know, it's not really such a big deal and it's quite useful. What were you doing before? I was a computer programmer. So that's quite a good job if you want to develop total renunciation because it's awfully boring. <laughs> okay, that's good training. <laughs> it's excellent training. So you didn't find it a hard decision to enter this way of life? I can tell you, I, by the time I did it, I was absolutely desperate. But that's part of this compassion business because at that time, Samuelin was run by Akon Rinpoche, who founded Samuelin, and he's the brother of Manmoshi, who's the abbot. So um, so quite soon after I got kind of connected with Samaline, I went and I said, right, now what I want to do is kind of give everything up and come and live in Samaline. And he said, mm, maybe wait. <laughs> but of course, if he wasn't that keen, I couldn't 
forced, <coughs> forced myself. And there was a thing where um, they were offering six months of kind of education in Buddhism to anybody who would come along. And the idea was you go back and teach small groups, whatever you learned in the place where you came from. So he said I could do the six months as long as I asked for permission from the people I worked for and as long as they were keeping me, keep my job open for me. And when I went back and mentioned that to the people I worked for, they just laughed. Because this was a time before Buddhism became as acceptable as it is now. And the, the guy who was my boss just said, you can't even ask for that. They'll just think that you've gone crazy. <laughs> so, so what did so, you do? So that's when I started coming every weekend. Okay. I just did the studying at the weekends and caught up what I'd, been, I'd missed. It was actually quite clever. So I worked a lot harder than I would have done, and it made me really keen. And also, what I've seen uh, since then is that a lot of people start off really keen. But they don't have the stamina or something, or the commitment to be able to keep it up. So they give everything up and then they regret it. So it was quite clever advice because I didn't do that or I didn't do it too soon. And because I had to wait for it, I really valued being able to do it when I did. So I feel very appreciative of that advice. So that's what I mean by the skillful compassion. It looked like I was being rejected and looked back, but actually it was the best sort of encouragement I could have had. Because it, just because of the kind of person I happened to be, you know, think I'm going to do this, I'm not going to stop me, you know, that kind of thing. So it, it's very, I think, very good if you understand the minds of people. You can really help them to make the best effort they can. But how you do that, I have no clue. So, <laughs> so what in these 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 past thirty years since you arrived, what what's changed or what's developed? Yeah, I think it, experience of life is the feat. So now for me, I really I think it's not so much what you do; it's how you are when you do it. So that's what's different. Being able to feel like there's some kind of meaning in life is, I think, the most important thing for anybody. And in our society, that's kind of lost. I think if you live in a way where just survival is a big deal and you have to focus on that, then that's enough to sustain life. But we're fortunate enough not to have that kind of fight just to live. So then we have the privilege of being disillusioned. <laughs> and I think that's a sign of an affluent society, really. And it's a great asset if you're able to use it. But many people feel that they can't do what they need to do, or they don't somehow have the opportunities or the conditions to be able to do what would make them feel like their life is meaningful. Why do you think that is? And I think there must be a lot of different reasons. Mm. I feel very fortunate that I could have could do it, but it was luck in a way, and having good guidance. So I was fortunate because the guidance was available, and also fortunate because I listened. Mostly we're so, I think many of us, we're brought up in a way so that we feel like we know best, and it's very difficult to trust somebody else. 
So if our minds are like that, it's quite difficult to to change dramatically because we're stuck with how we see the world and we can't get out of that. But if we can trust somebody who is reliable, then, and that's dodgy, you know, how do you find somebody who's reliable? So I feel I was exceptionally lucky in that respect. I found somebody who was reliable and has been reliable all the time since then. And there have been a lot of points where I would have done really stupid things. But because of that relationship, there was the possibility of not messing up totally. And if I'd been a really kind of gifted individually, then there could have been a spectacular kind of development. So as it is, it was slow, but at least it was positive. Whereas if it had been me making all the decisions just on my own, who knows what would have happened. So I think there are various elements that are kind of essential for something to be risk-free and continually positive. Do you think that's possible? I think it's always possible. And I think it's never too late. You can be old, you can be sick, you can be stupid, you can be clever. You can be rich, you can be poor. I don't think there's any one condition in terms of who you are that you need to have. And sometimes, you know, being quite unfortunate and things going really wrong for you can be quite beneficial when it comes to a spiritual decision. Because I think many people, I mean, like if your life's quite nice, then why would you ever look? Yeah, I mean, that's how I got into all this stuff. Really? I mean, and there was a point in when I was in, incredibly depressed and mm. the idea that that was some sort of gift mm. would have made that would have probably been the only thing that would have made me smile at the time if you told me that yeah. but now I see it as really fundamental important and important mm. to what who I am and what I do now mm. because it was the thing that shifted me out of the belief that life is just a low sort of level of misery and you get mm. on with it mm. and mm. I think the gift was to be pushed over the edge yeah. where it was no longer just low level it was mm. like unbearable yeah. and having to do something about it mm. but if that hadn't have happened I could easily have just yeah. bounced along and I yeah, see it's just drift it's, and drift yeah so mm. it's, it's yeah I can mm. see I, I wholly mm. believe that mm. that sort of point of tension that mm is that's the thing which can lead you in the in the positive yeah. direction mm. in the end but it's it's hard to realize that i don't know if it's yeah. even possible to realize that at the time especially if, if it's the first time yeah it may be uh, yeah it would be difficult it but it's very interesting yeah because i think without that we would just be too comfortable so then it's very very helpful and also i mean it's a kind of standard Buddhist teaching that if you want to learn compassion, you need to have experienced suffering yourself. And I'm sure you, know, you find that if, if you're in a situation where you're suffering in a particular way and somebody who themselves has experienced that talks to you or offers you help, that's meaningful in a way that's not meaningful if it's offered by somebody who doesn't understand how it feels. And it, so and if you yourself can resonate with somebody who's experiencing it you know how it is and it's much it's almost obvious or it's much easier 
to be able to do something that would be meaningful for that person. So I think it can be really, really powerful. And especially with things that, like, I mean, how many people are depressed, you know? It's such a problem. And being able to reach out and help people who have that means that, like, 25% of the population could potentially be helped. So, At least, yeah. Yeah, yes, I mean, it's all statistics, isn't it? And actually, probably loads of people never get, you know, you know, get recorded anywhere. So it, it could be loads. So something really simple. I think that's actually something that in Lanayashi Ryu's book, that's a, a really incredibly important message that he get, puts across a lot. It's like, it's okay to be happy. You, know, you don't need permission to be a happy person. And if you become happier, then life doesn't seem so bad. You know, all kind of like baby stuff. But when I look back at how things are and how we're brought up, it seems like, you know, if you're an intelligent person, then you have to be in the middle of being kind of not that happy. Because if you are happy, then it's a sign of being a bit stupid for you. <laughs> it feels, oh, I don't know if that's really true, that might be exaggerating, but I think there's something like that. And so if you're just a happy person, people think you're a bit daft. But gosh, you know, it's just stupid not to be, if you can be. And if you can't be, you can change quite easily. It's just a matter of deciding how to think. And all of us can do that, but most of us don't look at it that way or get into that way of thinking. And so there's so much that we can do, uh, but we tend to feel just totally disempowered and kind of everything being acted upon us. It, 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 it's such a pity. That's an incredibly hard thing to do, to, to change sort of the way mm. you're, you're experiencing the world, mm. especially in that when you're in it. And the yeah. and things seem so real and yeah. so fixed. Like it yeah. seems. I mean, I've been on a like long journey that I'm still very, very, very far from the end of a mm. road of mm. understanding this, of trying mm. to realise that the life that I was living was a life that I had essentially created, mm. albeit unconsciously, mm. and the steps to move away from that and create a life that I want was painful, really, really painful, mm. but ultimately worth it. Mm. Well, I, right now I can say it's ultimately worth mm. it. I, I assume, I don't think I'll ever regret those changes, mm. but, um, but it's really hard to do it, especially if there's mm. not a support mm. network or anything mm. like that, and you don't know it's a possibility, mm. so. Mm. Yeah, I totally understand. Yeah. I think it can be very hard to do, but then it, I think we don't need to know much, really. You know, I want the, the, the strength of having struggled through that yeah. is that you have some degree of understanding about the need. You know, if in your mind there's always the thought that it could happen again, then you, you, you feel more motivated to do something. So that, I mean, that's a wonderful thing to have because you can't ever get complacent. And I think, actually, that's the same for everybody. None of us can be complacent. None of us is really equipped to deal with really dire things. And the more that we've had to do to develop that kind of fortitude or attitude that will carry us through, then the better it's going to be. And we're all going to need it. But if you've been through something that's forced you into it earlier, 
then it 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 actually is a, an incredible advantage for later on, I think. And also, I think it will give you a more natural kind of understanding of how it works internally and how there is this choice. You know, like there are these thought patterns that are very fixed in our mind and they get into the way of everything. So you think one thing and that sparks off a whole pile of stuff that can end up with a positive emotion or a negative emotion. And it can happen automatically so that you're kind of there before you know it's happened. And starting to become familiar with that and to be able to have the thought at any point in the process, well, I could choose whether to think this or not. You know, I'm thinking this again. I've done that a million times already today. You know? yeah. I don't really need to do it again. And well, why don't I think this instead? And if we get into the habit of breaking negative trains of thought, then we've got what we need. So in a way, it's quite difficult. But in a way, if we get the habit, it becomes natural. So then it's easier to do than other things are. But it takes a lot of doing, of course. But anybody can do it. When I'm places like this, or when mm. a lot of time, I spend a lot of time outside in fields, mm. and, and I generally feel like, oh, I'm getting a getting the hang of this. Mm. And then last week, I sat down to do my accounts because I'm self-employed and I was and halfway through that uh, I was think like on the verge of breaking down and being like I've hardly earned any money I've got all these numbers I can't do numbers I've got these piles of receipts I've just been like shoving in for the past year and and like getting to the point where I was almost like ah, like screaming and then sort of having to realize that actually that's the practice <laughs> it's not when i'm in a field or when i'm in the um samaling um in the main meditation space <laughs> i mean that's part of it but it's also part of it is sitting there <laughs> doing yeah. the accounts and it was quite a strong realization that i think i got to a little bit too late in the process <laughs> but, um, but yeah but, yeah it's well i think also it's a matter of developing like in you know, in the beginning, then you don't want to take on too big a challenge. But once you get stronger at it, then you like Lama Yeshi, you know, he he wants this incredible pain so that he can really be with it 24 hours a day and see if his mind can really deal with it and transform it. Whereas most of us, you know, it's just like give me the painkiller, please. <laughs> you know, it's hard to have that kind of strength of mind. Yeah, to lean into pain. That's yeah, crazy. you know, and it's, I mean, he's he got this very extreme sciatica because basically he powered through pain for six years because you know his brother Akwamiji died very suddenly, and Mamiyashi had to instantly jump into the leadership role and not only not express grief himself. You know, they'd been refugees together, and Akwamiji had basically been his mother and his father. Because he had been quite young at the time, and then all their lives they'd been together and relying on each other, and particularly Lama Yeshi relying on his brother. And then suddenly, whack, gone, murdered. You know, just absolutely, just the potential for negative thoughts was immense. And yet he had to be the inspiration for a worldwide network of people. And he did that. 
and I'm a secretary and I saw him day in and day out and never once did he crack. There was never a glimmer of anything, so it was really impressive. So that takes real strong training of the mind. So, so somebody like him is fairly rare, but it's like he's kind of, you know, it's like these really wild kind of living people. They're like, you know, icons for everybody wants to be like them, but they've got their nice cozy little lives and they're not quite like that wild pop star. So he's the opposite, the kind of the wild yogi, <laughs> who just deals with any negativity and a good, they give me more problems, you know, he savors them, he needs to use them to kind of develop his meditation and all that kind of stuff. So he's like the extreme. But then because he he can say, you know, I lost my country, I lost my family, they tortured my father, they, my brother went mad because he got such bad condition. The authorities went in all these things, you know, he was a, a refugee, he nearly died of TB. He, there was just everything that could possibly go wrong in life, you know, and he enjoys the Western life a little bit. Then he gets diabetes. <laughs> His blood pressure is so high, he has to take super huge medication just to keep himself alive. So there's everything wrong. And he hasn't, you know, I don't think there's a human suffering he hasn't endured. <laughs> and yet he's maintained this incredible positive attitude and it really achieves things. So that's why places like this can be built. There was just nothing nothing to make it easy not even knowing the language you know Akonimbuji's English was worse than Amiyoshi and yet he got planning permission for a monastery <laughs> in the you know that alone just stuns me anyway I think if if Tibetan refugees who know nothing and have no money can manage to build a place like, place like this then we as individuals can manage not to get stuck with our mental stuff and even if we're not going to make huge, amazing buildings, we can manage to be sort of individuals who cope. And then the world's a better place. And also, you know, here we really don't care if people are Buddhist or not or anything like that. But if, as a result of having had contact, they, they become better people or happier people or whatever, then it's really worth our while being here. Thank you very much to Annie Lamo for giving me the time to have that conversation with her. She did seem to be one of the busiest people in that monastery and possibly the world. So I feel like it was quite a big thing to get that half an hour space in her schedule. So I thank her very much and I really appreciated it. I hope you appreciated the conversation and I hope you did as well. Uh, if you didn't listen to the first, the previous conversation with Lama Yeshi, then I would urge you to go back and listen to them. And the one with Radha Mohan Das. And I've got loads of other ones. There's so many. I mean, if you go back like to episode 22, there's that one with Charles Eisenstein. There's the one recorded with the late Polly Higgins. Uh, and there's lots of really interesting stories with people around their own journeys around mental health and navigating life and so go back and listen to them thank you very much to you for being here uh, if you'd like to find out more about the ministry of change then my website theministryofchange.org has a bit more about the project some videos of, sort of storytelling and conversations uh, it's blog posts 
just generally more content. Uh, and then also, I'd like to thank everyone that supported me on Patreon. Oh, it's so wonderful when people support me. <laughs> like, it's, it makes me feel so uh, honoured. And uh, just to know that you're there. And so if you can give any financial support, then I'll put links down below to my Patreon page. That really helps. But mainly you being here listening, telling your friends, liking and sharing on your social media, that helps me so much to spread this outside of my networks. Uh, also, I've just started uploading this onto uh, a platform called Anchor. That's what hosts my podcast. So now if you, use, if you go onto that app, there's actually a place where you can record messages straight to, straight to me. And it'd be really wonderful if anyone wants to do that, to share a, their own short story about their life or another story, uh, some feedback, things you like about the show, things you don't like about the show. And uh, maybe if it all goes well, I'll include some of them in the podcast in future. Uh, maybe not the things that we don't like about the show, but uh, <laughs> we'll see. But anyway, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you very much to Graham Walker, the lovely, magnificent, talented Graham Walker who provided the music that uh, is happening below here and at the beginning in the intro. Uh, he's a very talented person and I'll put links down to some of his work below as well. But thank you so much and I hope you join me again for another episode of The Ministry of Change soon. Goodbye.